good to see you with us today, worshiping with us. As uh, Brad referenced in his prayer, we had the missions fundraiser last Saturday night, and I just wanted to express thanks to you all who participated and gave for that. We raised just around $2,000 for our missionaries to give them a special Christmas gift and encourage them. These are people that we support full-time who are sharing the gospel in places that you and I probably will not have an opportunity to go, and so we want to do everything we can to encourage them as they preach the gospel, as they translate the Bible, as they work in really tough contexts to see people come to faith in Christ. So thank you for participating in that. What a blessing it'll be for these brothers and sisters. Well, this morning, we're going to end the book of Zechariah. Uh, we've spent nine weeks in this now, and I, I love finishing things. Uh, there's just a sense of, I don't know, accomplishment, or that's maybe the wrong word to use when preaching, but you get what I mean. I like to finish. People always ask me, Jacob, how do you maintain this figure? <laughs> Actually, no one's ever asked me that, but the reason is because I like to finish things, like bags of chips and <laughs> wheels of cheese and whatever else. But I love finishing things, and so it's a joy that this morning we get to come together, cold as it is, and experience the Word of God together. So we're going to cover the last three chapters of this book, 12, 13, and 14. We're going to spend a bit more time on chapter 12. There's some really neat New Testament connections that I'm going to make there, and then I will sort of summarize chapters 13 and 14 and close by giving us an application for the whole book that you can take with you this morning. But before we get into that, I want to give just a brief summary of what we've seen from chapters 1 to where we are now. So early on, and I think it's verse 3 of chapter 1, God calls his people to return to him. And this is the ongoing theme that we see throughout this book, and actually all three of these last books of the Old Testament, that God calls his people to return, come back to him. Now, the book of Haggai <clears throat> covered the physical return when the people returned from exile and came back to Jerusalem. Zechariah's return is a spiritual return. And God calls his people not literally or physically to return, but spiritually to turn their hearts away from the idolatry and the influence that they had had while they were in exile and to come back to him. And then right away in chapter 1, we launch into these eight visions that God gave Zechariah on a single night. And the point of these visions was to articulate where the people of Israel were, okay, where they were spiritually, the situation they were in, and to give promises to them that God was going to return to them to take care of their enemies, to restore peace, to give them strength by his spirit. And we see all of this in these visions that take us through chapter 6. Then chapter 7 through 8, we see God transforming his people by the power of his spirit. They were a people of fasting, a people of mourning, a people, in a lot of ways, of external obedience. It looked good on the outside with fasting and rituals and all this kind of stuff, but God said, that's not what it's about. It's about the condition of your heart. So because you can't do it, I am going to transform you from a people of fasting to a people of feasting and rejoicing, all because of the gift of his presence that's returning to his people. Then chapters 9 through 11, 
we were reminded that all of Israel's leaders, whether they were kings or shepherds or prophets or priests, all of them failed to keep the law of God perfectly, which points us to the reality that as God's people, we need a better leader. We need someone who will lead with righteousness, someone who will lead with true justice, who will stand for his people, and that is, of course, the promised Messiah, the branch, the chosen one that is prophesied in these books, the one that we know as Jesus Christ. So that brings us now to chapters 12, 13, and 14, where we are going to see how God will bring ultimate victory to his people through this promised Messiah, this promised Savior. So if you haven't done so, open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. This is just two books from the New Testament. So if you can find Matthew, back up two books, you'll find the book of Zechariah. And I'm going to read all of chapter 12 in in the first verse of 13 because that's where we're going to spend a lot of time, but we will not read the rest of the text together. So turn there, Zechariah chapter 12, follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angels of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning of Jerusalem will be great as the mourning for Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. And on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Let's pray. 
Lord, oftentimes your word contains messages that are not immediately clear to us. And so we ask today as we come before your word and submit ourselves to it that you would grant us grace, that by the work of your Holy Spirit you would open our understanding so that we can not just see objectively as words on a page, but that we would see with the eyes of our hearts the truth that you want us to know. Thank you, Father, for the time we've had in this great book. And I pray now as we come to its close that you would guide us and that together we would be stirred into greater affection for you, greater trust in you because of what you've promised to do. And above all, Father, would Jesus Christ, the Messiah, be praised. And I pray this in his name. Amen. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Aesop's fables. Anyone ever read Aesop's fables? Bunch of short stories. Most of the time they have some kind of life lesson, a moral uh, to be followed. Great for young kids and old kids. Uh, There's a really commonly known fable called The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Remember this one? So in The Boy That Cried Wolf, there's a shepherd boy who's tasked with watching the sheep. And he has this problem with being a habitual liar and he, he, he thinks it's funny and he cries wolf and all the village gets really stirred up and they go crazy but he's like Haha, I'm just kidding there was no wolf everyone rolls their eyes and goes back to it and he does this over and over again to the point that he ruins his reputation right nobody believes him he's unreliable so when trouble does come and there is a problem and he cries wolf everyone's like nah whatever it's just that guy doing what he's doing Now the reason I bring this up is because of the way chapter 12 of Zechariah starts. At first glance, this first verse might seem a little bit misplaced. We're in the middle of a prophetic book, God making promises, God telling his people what they should and should not do, and then we have this reference, which is kind of odd in verse 1, where we read about God's creative power. Look at verse 1 again, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. All of this is a reference back to Genesis 1 and 2, and the creation count. Other prophetic writers use this language of God stretching out the heavens and creating these things. So why do you think this is included right here before God is going to go on to make incredible promises to his people? Because in contrast... To the boy who cried wolf and could not be trusted, God is reminding his people he can be trusted. The word that he speaks is backed up by his reputation as the God who created everything. So the recipients of this prophecy should hear, okay, this isn't just the word of man, this is the word of God and not any God but the very God who created the heavens, who put the spirit of man in him. That's a reference to breathing life into a dead body. This is not a fable, and this is no false warning. The words that God speaks are to be believed. Nearly everything we're going to see today is forward-looking. God says, I will do this. I will do this. Why should the people believe that he's actually going to do it? Because of what he's done in the past. Human messengers 
can fail. Human messengers can lie, but not God. He has a reputation for faithfulness, for promise-keeping, not like the boy who cried wolf, who couldn't be trusted. God can be trusted. That's the point of this first verse. Everything that's coming after is being set up and built on a foundation that says, you can trust my word, just look around you. So, after that, we move on into the book. And there is a repeated theme. 17 times in three chapters, the phrase, on that day, occurs. That's a lot. In Hebrew language and in a lot of language, repetition is the linguistic device for emphasis. So when we see this phrase, on that day, 17 times, we should ask, why is it so frequently repeated and what does it mean? Now, throughout the Old Testament, this phrase in a couple of variations appears. It might be on that day, it might be on the day of the Lord, something like that. But it appears all over the New Testament and it references various things. It generally refers to a time when God comes to earth and does something only God can do. Okay, so whether it's in an immediate context, whether it's in a future context, as we consider the other writings of the Old Testament, specifically the prophetic books, this phrase is used a couple of different ways. For example, Amos 5 tells us that this phrase, on that day, was referring to the conquest of Samaria. Assyria comes in and does what they do and takes them over. That phrase is used. Or Joel 2 This is probably more well-known to you. The day of the Lord on that day is referring to the time when the Spirit of God is poured out on His people. A prophecy that we see fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So given all this, I think we can at least make a general statement that this phrase is is referring to a time, a specific time, when God returns to earth and does something only God can do. And as we get further into these chapters, we're going to see that especially 13 and 14 have an eschatological leaning. That just means end times. So it's referring to the consummation, to when God ultimately brings victory to his people. Now a couple of things to notice as we move into chapter 12. As we look at these first verses, let's say 2 through 9, you're going to notice this ramping up this building intensity as God deals with the people who are coming against his people. First, God confounds them and shames them. He says that people who come against Jerusalem are going to be as those who are inebriated, those who are drunk, a cup of reeling or staggering. And then it increases. Next, God allows them to be wounded while they're trying to abuse or move his people. You see that when the verse 3, on that day I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. So we're escalating. Then verse 4, God causes a panic, a madness to set in on the enemies and their weapons of war. And by the end of the passage, verse 9, God says, on that day I will destroy all these nations. So we see this escalation in the intensity with which God deals with the enemies of his people. And to hear this message as one of God's people, would be a message of comfort. That God isn't just going to play around or brush it aside or act like it's not a big deal, but he will systematically, with intensity, deal with all of the nations around. And this is a repeat theme. We have heard this over and over again as we have looked at the book of Zechariah. Now, as we keep going, 
Notice that God turns the schemes of these men back on themselves. They come to move God's people. They injure themselves while they're doing it. And how many times do we see in the Old Testament God flipping things around on people? I was thinking of the book of Esther. We all, you know the story of Esther and Mordecai and Haman. Right? Haman is this wicked guy who works for the king. He wants to destroy the Jews. So he devises this elaborate plan and God flips it around so that he is the one who bears the consequence of his plan. This happens all over the Bible. David prays for this repeatedly in the Psalms. Psalm 10, I just cite one here. Psalm 10, 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God, and let them fall by their own counsels. God has this way of turning the practices and the plans of the wicked back on themselves. This is a part of his justice. It's a part of who he is as almighty God. Now when we come to verse 10 in chapter 12, we're going to spend a few minutes here because there's just some really great stuff that we have to see and that I want to show you from verse 10. First, notice this. God is going to pour out his spirit on his people, a spirit of grace, so that they can repent. Now you might not see that immediately. Look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and subsequently pleas for mercy. That is repentance. That is recognizing sin and calling on God for the forgiveness of these sins. Charles Spurgeon said this, Repentance is always a creation of the Holy Spirit. There was never any real godly sorrow such as worketh repentance acceptable unto God except that which is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of man. And what a gift of God's grace. God instructs his people and commands his people to repent, to turn from their sin, to come back to them. But he knows that in the heart of man, we are incapable of doing that, incapable of seeking God apart from his work. So what does he do? He pours out. This is a liberal dose of the grace of God so that we are enabled to recognize our sin and to turn to God in repentance. Now, when does this happen? When does a person come to the understanding of their sinfulness and their need to repent of that sin. Look at verse 10 again. There's some strange language, and we're going to figure out what this says. Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him. Well, that's a strange way to say anything, isn't it? They're going to look on me, on him, What's going on? Is God saying it's him? Is he saying it's somebody else? Well, we are Christians. We are Trinitarian Christians who understand that our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we say, yes, it is referring to God, and yes, it is referring to someone else, namely the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Now let me argue why I think that is the interpretation we should have. Given the broader context of Zechariah, we know that this uh, promised shepherd king, the Messiah, the branch, the one that God said he would remove the sins of the people in a single day, this person is the Messiah, Jesus, 
who is yet to come. So we know from, of course, this is a little unfair. We have the rest of the Bible to inform us. Jesus is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a treatise on the Trinity. I'm just trying to help us understand what's going on with this language in verse 10. So, I am saying that when God says in verse 10, when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him. I'm saying that a right view of Jesus and his holiness and his sin-bearing nature produces sorrow for sin when people recognize that it was their sin that put him on the cross. This is made explicit in John's Gospel, John chapter 19. I'm going to read starting in verse 34. You can turn there. You can just listen. Jesus is on the cross. He's already died. And the Roman soldiers would come around at a certain point and break the legs of every criminal hanging on the cross so that they couldn't push themselves up to breathe anymore. They would suffocate and the process would end more quickly. They get to Jesus and it's unnecessary. Here's what it says. John 19, starting in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. That's just John's way of saying, I saw this. I witnessed this. And it's true. Verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's a quotation from Psalm 34. And again the scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So back to Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. The one whom they have pierced, the one they're going to look upon is Jesus. The sin bearer. The one who Peter says in his body bore our sins on the cross. And a look at him. I mean a real look. Reveals to us our sinfulness. I want to show you this in one other place. There's there's many references actually in the New Testament to this passage. Revelation 1-7. Later on in the book of Revelation. But I want you to go to Acts chapter 2. Um. Peter is preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. The the, the Holy Spirit has recently come upon them and and Peter being emboldened by the Spirit is preaching this Christological sermon, this Christ-centered sermon. And I want to read this because it shows us another kind of fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah. So hang with me and listen as I read. This is Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 36. If you want to go there. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. My point in reading this passage Can you see the connection? Zechariah says people are going to look upon Christ, the one they've pierced, the one they put on the cross, and they will repent and mourn for their sin. Peter says, look at Christ, the crucified, risen Messiah, and the people are cut to the heart 
and convicted of sin. That is a type of fulfillment of what we're seeing in Zechariah 12. That every time the gospel is preached and Christ is proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit, there should be conviction of sin. When we hold up His perfect righteousness to our sinfulness. Which is why, brothers and sisters, there ought never be a proclamation of the gospel that leaves out sin. No one's going to get convicted of sin and repent if you go to them and say, I got something for you. I can make your life better. You don't need a better life. You need a new life. And that only comes by the repentance, the remorse, the mourning of sin and casting yourself on Jesus for mercy. And the good news, the thing that makes the gospel so sweet is the horrendous, vile, wicked nature of our sin. Everybody knows that. But what they don't know is that we have a Savior. And that's what they need to hear. They need to look upon him who was, Isaiah says, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our sin was upon him by his stripes were healed. That's what we need to know. So make sure as you are sharing the good news, you include the bad news, which only sweetens the message of the gospel. Now, Chapter 13 is included in this section, verse 1. If it looks like that in your Bible, it's on purpose because this is again in verse 1 of chapter 13 referring to the cross and to the atonement. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The result of the piercing of the Messiah, as we read in John, blood and water flow out. The result of this piercing is not only that it brings sorrow and conviction for sin, but that it brings cleansing. Jesus' blood is a detergent that washes away the sins of God's people. We sing this all the time as we sing songs about the power of the blood and the power of the cross, or William Cooper's excellent song that we sing regularly there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and what happens sinners plunged beneath that flood what lose all their guilty stains Hmm. that's good news that's really good news now in our remaining time I'm going to summarize okay there's a lot of stuff going on here and I commend this for your reading But we are going to summarize chapters 13 and 14, hitting some of the high points, and then we will give a main takeaway here. So, chapter 13 starts by God promising to grant his people repentance and to cleanse them by opening this fountain, right, which we just said was from the Messiah. He also promises to remove idolatry and false prophecy and the spirit of uncleanliness from the land with a special emphasis on eliminating false prophets. If you remember from last time, we looked at chapters 9 through 11, we said that it was so important that we have good leaders. It really matters who you follow. So God, in order to cleanse his people, needs to remove the source of uncleanness, which is the false prophets. 
who are going around saying things contrary to the word of God. So the promise of cleansing is not just individual, but corporate. God's going to remove these false prophets and bring healing to his people. Now, look at verse 7 of chapter 13 with me. I'm going to show some other New Testament connections as we move through. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now this verb translated strike here is slightly different than the word pierced that we just saw, but they both have the same meaning in the sense that the recipient of this blow dies. Okay, these are fatal words. So the piercing is a fatal piercing. The striking in verse 7 here is a fatal striking. And the reason that this is important is because it makes a connection. We're talking about the same person. The one who was pierced is the one who was struck. As I said, in, in the broader context of this book, we see that this shepherd king, this coming leader is the Messiah, the one of Isaiah 53, who is the suffering servant. This is made clear again in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 11, we read this. Jesus said to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Aren't you thankful? I, I was just so thankful that the New Testament interprets the Old. <laughs> We're not left to just wonder, like, if you didn't have the New Testament, which the original audience didn't have, and you, you get this prophecy from the man of God, and it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord, strike the shepherd. And the, you'd be going, well, okay, who's standing next to the Lord? What's going on? No, God gives grace. He gives understanding through his spirit so that his people have enough to be obedient. But how blessed we are to live in a time where we can just keep turning the page. And you can find out what the word means and how the New Testament inspired authors interpreted some of these challenging things in the Old Testament. Now as we move into chapter 14, we're going to see again the promises of God as he promises to fight for and deliver his people, but we also see that this deliverance that's coming is going to come at a cost to the people. And we see them being divided out into thirds, and a third are going to go this way, and a third are going to go this way. But in keeping with God's character and his reputation, he preserves a remnant. It is never total destruction for the people of God, because in his grace, he has made covenant with them. So yes, there may be consequences for their disobedience, but it is never utter destruction because God is a God who keeps his word. There's also, as we read this, I think, an obvious future eschatological look. Now, okay, that's a big word. Eschaton means end, end of all things, ology, study of. So when we say eschatology, we just mean the study of the end times. If I say it's eschatological, I mean it refers to what's happening at the end. Okay, you tracking with me? So there's this obvious future bent, I think, to what's happening in chapter 14. As we read our Bibles and keep going, which we have the blessing to do now, into the New Testament, we see the language 
<coughs> excuse me, of chapter 14 being applied to both the first and the second comings of Jesus. As Brad referenced in the exhortation, we live between the first advent of Jesus, which is what we're celebrating right now at Christmas time, and the second or last coming of Jesus. And in between this time, we can apply certain things that we read to both the first and the second coming of Christ. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and established with Jesus' death and resurrection and will one day be fully consummated when he comes back and returns and judges the nations and sets everything right. This is the event that the New Testament calls the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And when this happens, when God sets everything right, look at verse 20 of chapter 14 here in Zechariah. On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and on the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. Meaning that everything, everything is going to be transformed at the return of Christ. From the greatest symbol of strength, the horse, down to the lowliest household item. Everything is transformed when the presence of God comes and sets all things right. And we should say, Lord, hasten that day. It is a blessed hope. It is the hope that we have as believers. Now, we come to the end. And we have spent nine weeks considering the content of this book. And I, I tried to kind of crunch everything down into one application, one thing. But it was hard, so I went with two. Um, so I hope, hope you understand. So two things I want you to leave with today. Having, having heard all the things that we've talked about. First... Throughout this book, we saw the repeated theme of God returning to his people, his presence returning, and, and the effect that that had, is having, and will have on his people, right? All over this book. And when God's presence returns to his people, it is, for the righteous, for the godly, a blessing. It is life-giving. It is hope-filled, but... For the wicked, for those who reject the law of God, for those who say, I don't want anything to do with you, thank you, it's a day of terror and judgment. Now, if I were to say to you, and by the way, if I ever say this, don't believe me, but if I were to say to you, Jesus is coming this afternoon, would you rejoice in anticipation of your king returning, or would you be terrified? Because you know that the presence of God returning is going to reveal what is in your heart. You need to reckon with that now. Because no one knows the day. No one knows the hour. Christ could return at any time. Are you ready to experience the presence of God? Second thing that was impressed upon me in this book, is God's 
ability to keep his promises. <laughs> How many times did we see God make a promise and then dial the lens out a little bit and see in history that everything was fulfilled? Maybe immediately, maybe in the life of Christ, maybe it's, we're still waiting for those things ultimately to be fulfilled. But God is faithful. He never, ever, ever fails to do what he's promised to do. And this book was such a stark reminder of that for me. And now I was thinking, we're similar to these people in the sense that we live in a time where God has made promises through his word, and some of those we haven't yet seen. God has promised to, to complete everything he started in you. Philippians 1.6. Are you complete? Is God still working on you? Yeah. That hasn't come yet. We're waiting for that. God promises Christ is coming back. He hasn't come back yet. We live in a time where in one sense we can believe that everything God has said is true and yet we still wait. So the question I want to ask is, how should we live in this in-between period? From the promises made to the promises kept, what do we do? And I was reminded of another Old Testament figure, Abraham. Remember Abraham? In Genesis 12, God makes Abraham an unbelievable promise that he would be the father of many nations, that through him all the families of the world will be blessed. Well, guess what? Abraham didn't see that. He didn't see the fulfillment of that. But how did he live? I was reading in Romans this week, and I made a big flashcard for myself. Romans 4, 20 and 21, so perfectly summarized what I'm trying to tell you right now. The way that you ought to live your life, and I ought to live my life, in light of the promises of God and the faith in Christ that we profess as Christians, how should you live like Abraham? And here's what I mean. I don't know if you can read this. I'll make you one. I laminated. Can you see that? Shiny? I'm going to frame this. Romans 4, 20. No unbelief made him, that's Abraham, made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, <clears throat> fully convinced that God is able to do what he had promised. How should we live our life right now? In between the comings of Christ, waiting, anticipating, longing for the return of Jesus, fully convinced that's how you live, that God is able to do everything that he has promised to you. And I mean everything. Nothing else is going to get you through this life. Nothing else is going to satisfy you. Nothing else is going to bring you joy and lasting happiness other than trusting the promises of God. Will you commit to do that as we go into this new year? Can you imagine a church full of people fully convinced that God can do what he's promised? Oh, make it so. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your promises. You have never broken a promise and you will never break a promise. So as we consider 
what your word tells us, that you are able to supply everything we need, that you will forgive our sins when we confess to you, that you will strengthen us by your spirit, that you will give us your spirit to indwell us, that you will just be with us and strengthen us and encourage us and establish us. The reason that we can believe those promises is because of the book of Zechariah, in part. Because we understand that your word teaches us, God, that you are faithful to your promises. So do it. Do it. God, be faithful to your word. And would you give us as a church the grace to repent of our sin, to come humbly before you, to turn to you, and to anticipate the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, this is not a work that we can do. It is a work that only you can do. So please, come. Convince us of your faithfulness and help us to live our lives fully convinced that you are able to do all that you have promised. And we praise you and glorify your name and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.